Woodruff School of Nursing, or Emory Healthcare. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the Nurses Station show. We're so glad that you decided to come and listen with us today and join us for our discussion about resiliency and burnout. Remember that you can follow us at nursing.emory.edu, or you can also find our podcast on any of the the places that you download podcasts. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is is, um, unfortunately something that nurses deal with quite a bit, uh, burnout. And our guest today is going to be a very special guest. We'll wait to introduce him a little bit later. I think you'll find um, he's very important to us in the nursing profession. And so today we're going to have Dr. Roxana Chikas, Dr. Tim Cunningham, Dr. Carolyn Clevenger, and myself just share with you our thoughts about burnout. So since we have such a busy show today, we're just going to jump right in. So just in general, how's everybody doing? Great. All right. Yeah. Doing good? Are you burned out? Let's just start with that. Are you burned out? If so, tell me why. And just just, just spill the beans. A little bit. (laughs) A little? (laughs) I don't know that anybody who's really burnt out um, wants to call themselves burnt out. I mean, to me, it almost feels like I'm giving in if I fully own that. I'm a little crispy around the edges. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. There's such a stigma around it. And we're supposed to be like successful, thriving, high-functioning people. And if we say that we have burnout, like that could be taken the wrong way yeah. by our bosses, maybe, right? By our leaders, by if people hear, oh, Tim said he's burnt out. That means we like, oh, we can't rely on him to keep doing what he's doing. Or, or maybe people are going to worry about me. Or, you know, we put all these thoughts out there that probably don't even exist. I don't know. By our patients, right? Because we're seeing we're supposed to be very strong and like be able to help patients through really difficult times. So, so let me ask you, what what is burnout? I mean, we, we're talking about it, you know, loosely. But what do you define burnout as? What does that mean? We like there's so many definitions out there. Um, one thing that I love about the one of the main definitions of burnout in healthcare is that it's a work related syndrome. And I think maybe as we talk about it today and we dig in, like keeping it focused on knowing that it's related to work, we might feel burnout in like home settings and outside of work. um, But we also know that with burnout, it comes from work. And so we got to do something about it in the work setting so that we can help support each other. I don't know. What what do you all think? Are there other ways that you think about burnout? That's a great point. I think, you know, sometimes when you uh, maybe have a shorter fuse than usual or, um, you know, you just don't have that same level of empathy and compassion that you want. Or, you know, I also hear people use the word compassion fatigue. I'll throw that out there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I hate that word, by the way. Really? I mean, I don't know if it's too early to jump on board, but I think compassion fatigue, we got to talk about that today. Okay. I so, think it's misleading. So, so, okay. What is compassion fatigue, Tim? All right. And why don't so, you like it? All right. And this, in this episode, you all might have to hold me back because this is what I'm passionate about. This okay. stuff, this burnout, compassion fatigue, empathy fatigue, like all of that stuff. Um, did a lot of research on it and see it every single day. Okay. So compassion fatigue, it's this idea that by being compassionate all the time, all day long. And if we think about nurses in a clinical setting, you give, 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 you go, 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 go. Compassion fatigue suggests that you might run out of the ability to be compassionate for someone else. You might run out of that energy to provide compassion, and you might run out of that space to truly give good care. 
Um, but I'm gonna suggest compassion fatigue is actually impossible. That you, you think it's impossible? Yeah, I don't think you can run out of compassion. Well, but does, does that, I, I don't think compassion fatigue means that you're gonna run out of it. It's just saying that because you provide so much compassion constantly that it can be draining. Yeah, and, and I, I, that's what a lot of people say, I think about it, Lexi. But if you look at some of the neuroscience around compassion, compassion itself is actually not draining. It's rewarding. It's rewarding, yeah. Yeah, it's it fulfilling. It is, but it, I don't know, Tim. I think I'm, I might slightly disagree with you on it because I'm a very compassionate person and I love, like compassion in and of, maybe we're saying the same thing. Are you saying that yeah. compassion in and of itself is not draining? I'm saying compassion in and of itself is not draining. It's a human characteristic and ability. And I think some animals can experience it and give it to, but compassion in its best form is not draining, but empathy is. Hmm. Let me, can I have three minutes to try to convince you? A minute and a half, though. Let's see what happens. Minute and a half, <laughs> go. Okay, I'm gonna talk extra fast. So we've got empathy and we've got compassion, right? Okay. We as nurses, in whatever role we take as nurses, know that we move forward into this work because we are about connecting with people. As researchers, we're about connecting. Roxanne, I think about you working with the farm workers that you're, you're doing research with right now. How do we connect? Carolyn, how do you connect with your students? Lexi, your students, the mamas that you're helping bring a life into the, into the world. Um, we're, we're all about connection. And if you watch someone's brain when they're connecting, you can do this under MRI, functional MRI. Um, if I am watching you, for example, Lexi, get someone prick you in the finger with a sharp needle. If I watch that happen to you, my brain lights up in the same regions as if my own finger was getting pricked by that needle. Like you can measure that, it, 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 it's, it's an fMRI. And in that way, I'm seeing your pain and essentially I'm feeling your pain. And that's a defense mechanism. That's the human evolved brain to say, huh, next time I see a needle near my finger, I'm gonna pull my finger away because I saw Lexi get hurt by that. I don't wanna do it. Mm -hmm. So that let's consider empathy feeling someone else's pain. Now, go back to your work setting as nurses. If every single day we're experiencing someone else's suffering in, in hearing their stories in, in, in helping provide care, we are seeing that, we're feeling their pain, we're experiencing that, over time we're gonna wear out. So I consider that empathy fatigue. Let's take it to the next level of, of compassion. All right, so we got empathy fatigue. Throw compassion fatigue out the window. I'm, there's some researchers that might hear this and might not be happy about this. But if we look at the neuroscience of compassion, there was this really interesting study where a bunch of people actually sat in an fMRI and they watched people get injured. Their brains lit up the empathy regions as if they were feeling that pain themselves. Mm -hmm. These folks then went through compassion training for a few weeks, went back in the fMRI, saw another image of someone experiencing suffering. And this time, and this is st statistically significant, this time when they saw the suffering, the empathy regions lit up a little bit, but even more so regions in the prefrontal cortex, which are associated with creativity, lit up significantly more. Like the brains of the people that had compassion training were going crazy in these regions that are associated with creativity and sometimes even joy from creativity. Not joy that I'm seeing someone suffer, but joy that I know I am a capable human being. I see an issue and I know that I can do something to fix it. And so to that end, Compassion inspires us to make a change. Now, we could get tired, but I'm gonna argue it's not compassion that's wearing us out. It's broken health systems. 
Okay, broken. That was more than three minutes. No, no, it was beautiful. I mean, we're just trying to kind of put it all together because I think sometimes compassion and empathy, we kind of flip-flop those. So would you say compassion is just, you know, you see something, you can understand it, but it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily feel it. Um, yeah. as, as, as opposed to empathy is more, you kind of like really feeling what the person's going through. I think, I think that's it. Yeah. I think what compassion is an act. It moves you to act, to do something. And empathy is just the, the feeling. Yeah. The Dalai Lama says compassion is a verb. And I think that's it. Like when you're doing something about it, but maybe even thinking about it, I am using the skills that I have to try to create a new pathway for this person I'm trying to care for. That's compassion. I understand. So mm-hmm. when we're talking about nurses, let's, let's pull it all together. So that's one aspect, right? We have the emotional, you know, how things pull on us, but what else is contributing to burnout for nurses? What are the nurses telling you, Tim? Or I'm hearing, Carolyn? I'm hearing a ton about um, broken systems. I'm hearing a ton about inefficiencies. I'm hearing a lot from nurses and this is even before COVID about, I signed up to do this job. But before I can do this job, I've got to check all these boxes. I've got to do all this charting in the electronic medical record that our doctors are also doing. And I don't know who's reading what because it's double charting. And I have to jump through all these hoops before I can step into the bedroom of the patient that I want to care for and sit next to them and hold their hand and give them compassion. So I think for me, it's barriers. I don't know. Carolyn and Roxana, do you hear other things? No, I think there definitely is really a ton of frustration when you want to, you want to act, you want to uh, enact the compassion that you were trained to do, that you know you are capable of doing, and then these systems are in the way. There are also some sort of being in the workplace, um, I think, that affect uh, all of us. Uh, you know, we had a, a speaker um at Emory earlier this year, who talked about uh, burnout specifically for advanced practice providers, so nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And the, one of the things that I took away because I heard it and I thought that that's, that's the thing. This is, this is definitely contributing. It's the role ambiguity, the not feeling like you belong in either camp and getting pushback both from the nursing workforce who want to sort of push this piece, especially for nurse practitioners, more so than our physician assistant colleagues. Uh, you know, we want you to, we want you to be more nursey, whatever that means, as though you're not. And then from the physician providers, because you're not a physician, so you sort of sit in this in-between world and you don't have, I think, that teamwork, that collegiality that probably offsets some of those frustrations on a typical work day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about the feeling of powerlessness, uh, where you know that there are barriers, a broken system, but you can't fix it in that moment, right? Because we want to fix things in that moment. Uh, and, and listening to Carolyn uh, describe that kind of being in limbo, you're not uh, from either group, reminds me of uh, uh, DACA students, dreamers, who are kind of like in that limbo also, um, and in a system that I've been in before, uh, it's, it's, it really kind of weighs on you. Mm-hmm. What, what about, um, I know we're kind of mostly talking about clinical, our examples, but let's broaden it a little bit, you know, because the nursing profession covers a lot of different areas. And from my, what I hear people telling me, there are a lot of people burned out in academia, in leadership, 
Um, can you all speak to maybe how that's been or things you've heard or kind of why that might be? I think there are some similarities, right? So you want, you want to connect with students, you want to support them. And then there are, there are these other factors around being able to do that, whether that means your right now, the level of support that you have to do your online education. But before that, you know, there are so many faculty. I, I enjoy large lecture courses. I love doing them. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It, there's a certain flavor to it though. And, you know, you kind of have to set things up like that, but I have colleagues who that's not their comfort zone and they do small group seminars, um, which are also very meaningful, but there's a lot more of that connection with students. So I've always felt like when I was doing a lot of teaching and, and less practice in administration, I almost like to balance the large lecture with either a clinical group or a seminar group where you can still have that kind of connection with students. You get the sense that you really are, and this sounds so lofty, imparting knowledge. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but you really are contributing to this person's development. You're helping them evolve and change, which is why you go to school. You, that's why you further your education because you hope to do that so that you can then make an impact. And so, um, some of our relationships get impeded by the way we structure higher education as a business. Yeah, I think healthcare too is structured as a business in a lot of ways. And if you think about that in a business model, you have supply and demand, right? And then, but if you structure healthcare like a business, supply and demand means you need sick people to keep your business running. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think, you know, Carolyn, you get to this great point. There are these systems and structures created that were created at one point and sort of evolved over time with control, without control, sometimes with, with negative ambitions. So a few people can profit over others. Sometimes people just lost track of it. Um, and one thing that I've been witnessing with nurses, especially with COVID in academia and also clinically is that nurses are finding some really creative ways to push against it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know we, we're gonna jump into the resiliency, but I'm not quite done with the burnout. <laughs> but I love I'm, resiliency. I know, we're gonna get to the positive, right? You know, that's what we do at the nursing station. We talk about both sides of it, but I still feel like we're skirting around the issue. I feel like, let me just, let me just say how I feel about the situation with burnout. I think that our profession is like a runaway train in, a, in, in all areas, meaning we, we have good intentions, we wanna help, grow our students, we want to help our patients, but we just go full steam ahead. I mean, we just push and push and push. And this last year of COVID, I mean, I'll just speak from the academic side of things. Um, whereas the rest of the university might have kind of had a law, we are the nursing school and the med the, even the school of medicine. We don't have a choice. We still have to produce clinicians. And so there was this pressure. It's like, let's get them trained and let's do it now. Like COVID hit, everybody's world fell apart. But we still were like, okay, let's take away spring break and let's turn everything around online and let's just do it. And everybody jumped on board with it. But then that turned into, okay, here the summer semester is, let's bump the summer semester up by a, a, a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So all the faculty's like, well, I'm, still in, I'm still in the spring semester that mm -hmm. started off face-to-face, -face, that shifted online. And now I have to put my courses together and lose the weeks in between, right? So we, we pummel through the summer. And then here comes fall, same thing, bump into fall. As a matter of fact, the fall semester needs to be done by Thanksgiving. So what I see is 
and there has not been a complaint, right? Nurses, we do what we have to do because we want to get the job done. But what happens is you burn the workforce because burnout to me is where you start to just have this emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion that even when you sleep, even when you exercise, even when you try to do all the things to correct it, it just does not go away because there is this constant pressure to keep going. I feel like in our culture, American and nursing, we don't a lot for rest. If you look at every other culture, there's a period of work and there's a period of rest. I don't yeah. see that at all anywhere. And I definitely don't see it in the nursing profession. So I feel like our, our profession is setting us up for burnout. Yeah. All, all things, all joking aside, I love being a nurse, but um, it's setting us up to burn out because I don't see where the balance is. And I don't think nurses should have to be just resilient. We're going to talk about that, Tim. But is it on the nurse to just come <laughs> up with resilience and the system keep moving forward like it is? But what, what do you suggest would be a, a, a solution. Um, required vacation. Like yes. you have vacation days, right? You mm -hmm. should, just like I have to document that I have to get training and whatever, and I have to do all these things for my annual review. I should also have to show that I took my vacations. I, I should be able, I should have to show those things. There is a nap ministry here in Atlanta. Have you all heard of this? It's, it's a nap ministry. A nap ministry. And it's all about encouraging people to take a nap and and it's run by artists who and i believe one is an emory grad who they do these nap installations around the city where someone in this beautiful setting is just napping in public because they say napping is 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 it's a push against the system that is set in a way that 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 i don't know lexi i think it's it's based in fear why are we so burnt out because i think there's fear in a lot of aspects that if we don't do good enough if we don't work fast enough, if we don't work hard enough, someone's gonna get ahead. And I think that systems in this country across the board, inside and outside of healthcare, and that fear makes us think we have to do all of this stuff, and then we find ourselves burnt out. Um, you mean fear, when you say fear, you mean like that someone else is gonna get ahead of you? Yeah, fear? I think it's competition. I think it's fear, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, also though, if you think, so I thought you were going to talk about the nap studies during night shift. So 20 minute naps, sleeping sessions actually improve alertness and patient uh, safety outcomes for uh, patients on units from uh, staff working night shifts. Uh, so I was also thinking about not necessarily fear that someone else will get ahead, but it's sort of fear of a bad outcome, fear something bad's going to happen to my patient on my watch. And we tied, again, we spoke about this in a previous previous episode, we tied nursing to the tasks sometimes. And if you could let that get into your head, then more tasks, doing more, getting a lot of things done, maybe that leads then to patients being safer, patients being, staying well, um, having better outcomes. You know, there's also that fear, like not, you know, I'm not going to let bad things happen on my watch. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to do, 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 do. Yeah. And what do you get when you just do, 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 do all the time? <laughs> I'm afraid we're gonna have a body fluid comment. Oh, yeah. no. It does um, become fluid. It's diarrhea, right? It's just nonstop do 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 do. Yeah, that's yeah. a good analogy, Tim. That's a good since, one. Since, since you mentioned diarrhea, oh no, um, oh no. It's been coming I would for like a minute. to know. I would like to know what everybody's like bodily fluid that they just cannot take. They cannot oh, the take one that like, burns like, me like, out. Burns you out. Yes, the one that just. Body like fluid had, burnout. <laughs> if I had a shift full of this body fluid, then I would quit nursing. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's your favorite, Lexi? Vomit and 
spit like like when you do a trach suction that sound of that i cannot do it i yeah don't i don't need this <laughs> like that kind of yeah or a vomit is okay but it's, it's the smell that comes from it that i can't really <laughs> Mm -hmm. me a lot. No. There. How about you, Roxana, since you posed the question? Um, feces. Really? And um, yeah, so like when I was a nursing student, I think like on my second or third clinical day, uh, I went into a room to help um, a nursing tech change a patient that had a bowel movement. And, um, and he, he was like 18 years old and his mom was in the room and I'm just holding the patient while the the nursing assistant cleans him. And I was like, I'm just not going to breathe because of the smell. And at some point I was like, I'm going to have to breathe. And for some reason I thought it would be a, the best idea was to uh, breathe through my mouth. Oh, and I did okay. that. And then I like, it was like, I could taste it. And I, I, I so I, my eyes were like watery <laughs> and I just, I, and because the mom was there, I was like, I have to maintain composure because she's going to feel awful if I just start like vomiting all over the place. And so I just was using every like restraint in me. And as soon as she finished, I just walked out the door and I was like, <gasps> That's is, that the day, is that the day you decided to go into research, Roxana? <laughs> I feel you, Roxana. My first clinical was on a GI floor and I was like, I've made I've made a mistake. Like I'm in nursing school and I've made a mistake. <laughs> but then after I start delivering babies, you know, poop is a part of the process. So then I got over poop. That's the thing. You <laughs> just, just knock it out the way. A little more exposure helps a lot. I used to sputum used to be my thing, but then I did LTAC, long-term acute care units with the clinical groups for a couple of years. And there's just something actually very gratifying about getting a big bunch of sputum out of that trach when you're sectioning somebody you're like, yeah, clean it out. Like it just, no, I don't think so. I'm sorry. It's great. That does not make me feel resilient as a nurse. None <laughs> at all. Oh, it's a win. <laughs> you know what made me feel really resilient when I was practicing clinically? I was the barf catcher. Like in the emergency department, people would roll in and you don't always know what's going on with some of the emergency department. They might not look good. They might look a little pale. Their vital signs might be off. But you, like I developed this sense that like when someone was about to rolf, whether it was coming out this way or the other way, I would have a bedpan in my hand and before they could even be like, I'm gonna, it'd be in front of them and I would catch every splatter. I was, <laughs> like the Captain America the shield. <laughs> I'd walk out of the room with the bedpan over my head, be like, I caught this, no one got messed. And then I trip and spill it, but. You know, it's really that type of stuff that keeps us resilient as nurses. Like, it is. Like getting an laugh. IV when nobody else can get the IV and then they call you and you get it. You're like, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> That's how we remain resilient, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and the let's jokes talk you have. Yes. Yeah, so since we're talking about body fluid resilience. Yeah. Um, amniotic fluid is like my thing. I, I love it. Like Your if a mom thing? comes in, no, I'm just saying, like when we're thinking about from a nursing perspective, the things that make me happy, that help me keep going. When a mom comes in, our water breaks or like, I don't know, it pops and it's just like, it's just like, yes. So it's getting real, you know? So... <laughs> Tim. <laughs> Am I turning green? I feel like I'm turning. No, it's a midwife thing. You know stuff is really like, you know, happening. Slowing. So it's not right. the same effect for you. Okay, it's just a midwife thing. Okay, well. Fluids that yeah. bring joy though, right? It's, fi it's finding that joy. Any other yeah. fluids that bring you all joy? 
It's like, I'm glad when my patients are uh, having bowel movements. That means I did my job. I'm like the constipation fairy. <laughs> geriatrics, y'all. Things slow down. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the little things in life. Let's, let's just segue into real resilience. I know we, we spent about <laughs> five minutes way too long on that. Um, all right. So <laughs> nurses get burned out. Various different areas. Okay. So what, how are we remaining resilient? Because I feel like, like in the school of nursing, everybody's doing everything with a smile. We might say, oh, they're pushing us to do this, but we are like, we are glad to do it, right? Because we know yeah. we're providing a service. And so what do you think nurses are doing to remain resilient? Or what is it about our profession that we have inherent resilience, I believe? So I think we've been doing it since the beginning of this profession. I, I, I firmly believe that, but I also firmly believe that we haven't given resilience that, that, that microphone to say, this is what we're doing. We haven't given in that space to celebrate it and recognize it as a key part of our profession, but nurses have been doing it. And I also like, people have been doing it since the beginning of time. I think of my friends and my colleagues of color who have been resilient their entire lives because of the country they live in, the way they've been treated by what they look like or who they choose to love or what they choose to believe in. Like resilience is an inherent human thing. And I think where we've failed as a health system, as, as, as health in, a, in America, is that we haven't recognized it and we haven't celebrated it. So what if we, I mean, I don't know, I'd like to put out there that we begin from a place of we're already doing it and it's, it's all about defining it and making sense of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, what is, you know, yeah, it makes sense to me. What, what exactly is resilience? I mean, we're, we're, we're throwing it around, but what does it mean? Yeah, so resilience is the ability to face adversity and creatively do what you need to do to be your best self. It's, it's maybe bouncing back, but I think bouncing back is kind of a cliche, like, oh, I get knocked down, I bounce back up again, I ain't never gonna tell me, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, no, it's not that. It's, it's because we can't always bounce back to 100%, especially in the times of COVID, if we're thinking healthcare, we're exhausted. But what if we can bounce back to 60%? So bounce back, it's more about how do I experience the situation and reframe it for myself and for others or let others reframe it for me so I can be my best self and be the, like, the stellar human I need to be. Yeah, I, I think though, I just wanna make sure we touch on this point. I think we all agree, but I don't wanna put words in anyone's mouth. Burnout is a work-related symptom. We have systems that um, contribute to that greatly. And I want to make sure we don't then expect the individual nurse to cope with it by building resiliency as the individual, right? So we have a system-related problem. The solution cannot just come back to the nurse growing in their resilience. Not that that's not part of it. I just want to make sure we don't sort of say, this is on you to take care of yourself better. And that's exactly where we've gone wrong historically. And that's what's exciting about, especially thinking about our new nurses listening in. This is the change that you all need to make. And this is the change that we're working on making as leaders now. We're quite a few decades behind, but it should not rest on the shoulders of our nurses, period. Because there are so many other factors. And one way that we can change it, here's a great thing about COVID. And I thought I'd never say that a great thing about COVID. One great thing about COVID is that as we're learning about resilience, there's this thing called post-traumatic growth 
that we're hearing from our clinicians more and more and more. And um, post-traumatic growth is this idea that when you're experiencing burnout or trauma, what is happening sort of on the positive side coming through? It's not to negate all the negative that's happening, but it's also shedding a light on saying, hey, let's recognize we're able to tell a fart joke in the middle of a really serious conversation. Let's recognize that we as a team still have the ability to laugh, even though the U.S. just recently hit 200,000 deaths because of COVID. Post-traumatic growth helps us look at what are the new possibilities that have come up because of the suffering, the shared suffering that we've been through. And then what do we do with those new possibilities? So like, what's the new creative way? What's the deeper relationship that you've experienced with your team, your family members? What are the relationships that have ended because of COVID? That's okay too. Because that's made me a better person, right? Yeah. What are and, new strengths? And Tim, I want to ask you one more question, being the Vice President of Practice and Innovation, right? So yeah. have you talked with your nurses? Have you had conversations with the nurses about how they're approaching this or how they've grown beyond, I mean, since COVID? I have. I've had lots of conversations in daytime, nighttime, meeting with groups of nurses, individual nurses. Um, and one thing that I try to do in my current role is not prescribe anything to anyone. So I set up these conversations and just to listen and ask what's going on. And what's been fascinating is that the conversations begin with, I'm exhausted, I'm fatigued, I'm scared. And then as our nurses continue to share, they turn the conversations themselves to, but I feel stronger. I feel like a badass right now. I never knew I would, I would be able to do this kind of work. And I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of my team. Our nurses who have spiritual practices, religious practices, have said across the board, my faith is deeper. My community, my, 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 at the mosque, at the temple, at the church, whatever my faith community is, I feel so much stronger and connected with that. Um, so again, like it comes out if we create the space for it. And then as leaders and researchers and teachers, how do we recognize that space and really help amplify that? Because um, you can teach resiliency practices, but I don't think you can teach resilience. I think that's something that arrives and develops in your own self. Mm -hmm. But you can but, surely set up the stage for it. Yeah, that's, that's good. I love it. Um, I was going to ask Roxana to chime in on this, if she had any ideas about um, how we could do that, what Tim is talking about on a larger scale. Like, what would that look like? It, to tie in what Carolyn also said, that it's not just on the individual nurse. How do you take what both... Tim and Carolyn shared, and what, what would you see, Roxana, as how we could do this or incorporate that on a larger scale? Yeah, so I, I think that one of the reasons that there is burnout um, is the sense of powerlessness and not seeing kind of like um, nurses in uh, leadership kind of lead, lead, um, or nurses being excluded from like, for example, there was a list that was just released on who are the best people to listen to on COVID-19, and there wasn't a single nurse on there. Uh, and so I think that contributes to burnout. So I think that one of the ways to kind of help with this resiliency is for um, nursing leaders to kind of show up and like, uh, you know, bring their own, make their own table for nurses so that we are empowered uh, to have our voices heard. Because oftentimes I don't think people really like listen to us or people in power. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really just uh, taking, taking the power. 
Right. Take take the power. (laughs) Take the power. Take it, nurses. Um, Well, in speaking of power and influence, I think this would be a good time to introduce our guest speaker that I alluded to at the beginning of the episode. So today we have the esteemed Dr. Ernest Grant, who is the president of the American Nurses Association. And he's agreed to come on today to talk with us about nursing and resiliency and burnout and a whole host of different topics. So we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, great. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about you and kind of what you've been up to? (laughs) Certainly, I'll be happy to. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. Ernest Grant, president of the American Nurses Association. I have the uh, distinct honor of being the first male president of ANA and the uh, the 125 year history of the organization and only the third African-American to uh, hold this position. Um, what have I been up to lately? Um, you name it, I probably have been doing it. Uh, let's see, obviously trying to tackle COVID in so many different ways, uh, meeting the needs for nurses that are out there. Um, we're still, we do, uh, a poll every other month about nurses and uh, asking nurses what it is that they need or what they're seeing happening as a result of uh, COVID. Overwhelmingly, it's coming back that it is, um, you know, the PPE shortage and a few other things. But um, interestingly, and I'll be discussing this a little bit later on during my lecture, uh, we also just completed one that looked at the financial impact of COVID on nurses. And particularly, there's a huge Um, statistically significant difference between the African-American and Hispanic nurses versus uh, uh, white nurses as it comes to, um, you know, what COVID uh, has done. Um, Actively uh, working on Capitol Hill to try to get more legislation and funding uh, passed to, uh, you know, into the supply chain and uh, things of that sort. Still trying to run an association (laughs) (laughs) in between all of that. And uh, of course, um, you know, ANA is, uh, you know, we do a lot of international work as well with the uh, International Council of Nursing. So uh, you name it, we're pretty much there. And also trying to get more nurses engaged in the uh, political process, trying to get them to um, uh, obviously choose a candidate that they want to support, uh, to register to vote and to vote, and also get their friends and families and other colleagues to uh, to vote as well. So uh, that's a typical day for me. That's a lot. And you know, wow. it, just in that, you, you hit on a lot of the things we want to ask you about. So I'm glad that you kind of put that right out there. Um, yes. Are you burned out? No. <laughs> oh, okay. You gave a long list. So I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I'm a a burn nurse, so I'm used to to juggling uh, many balls in the air, um, you know, because you never could tell, one of the things that was always a big challenge for us, you never could tell when you pick up the phone, you know, how many admissions you were going to get. It could be one, it could be, you know, multiple. So, uh, you know, I'm still sort of in that mode to adapt and, uh, you know, go with the flow. That's wonderful. So, Glad you're not burned out. So I'll I'll start with the burnout and resiliency question since that's kind of what our episode was about today. So what do you feel that health systems are doing or what should they do to address burnout for nurses and not just put it on the nurse themselves to be resilient? What do you think that should look like? Well, that's a a great question. And before I answer that, let me provide a little bit of supporting data because as I mentioned, we do surveys every other month. And so our second survey that we did was indicating that nurses are 
succumbing to a lot of emotional stress, um, actually PTSD. There was a report of not sleeping or sleeping too long, not eating or eating too much, or the fact that they couldn't process so many deaths that were happening, you know, on their shifts. And, uh, you know, by the fact that, you know, you no sooner had a death to occur, then you had to turn right back around, fill that bed with someone else who was waiting in the ER for that particular bed. And even on their days off, they were just, you know, reporting a, a lot of, um, emotional stress and strain. So, um, you know, I think what a lot of, um, you know, healthcare facilities need to do is to set up some way for nurses to, um, you know, to be able to express that, hey, I'm drowning here, or I need some help, or, you know, I need to talk to someone. You know, as healthcare professionals, we're, we're in a way, I think we're worse than the military. You know how in the military is considered, um, um, uh, I guess, uh, a cop-out, if you will, for lack of a better term, to admit that you need help. Um, you know, you're considered weak. Uh, for us in healthcare, it's sort of that way as well. Um, you know, we're great at looking at the mental health needs of others, but when it comes to ourselves or our colleagues, we, you know, we sort of fail in that, uh, that particular area. So I think what systems need to do is put in, uh, or healthcare facilities need to do, is put in some sort of a system whereby people can begin to identify these little small things that are, you know, that are slowly building up. You know, if you notice that an employee is maybe habitually late or uh, they report, you know, I didn't get to sleep last night, or this is the third or fourth night in a row that I haven't been able to sleep the full eight hours or 10 hours or, or whatever. Those should be little red flags that normally we would probably, you know, let pass. But, uh, and of course, when it begins to spill over into their work as well, you see medication errors, you see that they're really quick tempered, uh, you know, things of this sort then we need to be able to have a system to step in and say, you know, instead of you're working in the ICU today, why don't we, you know, maybe uh, if we can rotate you out and let you do something that's a little less strenuous or what are you doing to, you know, to meet your own, uh, you know, health needs. Talk to me about what resources you may have at home that you, is there anyone at home that you can talk to, you know, in particularly, or maybe, um, uh, you know, if necessary, uh, <laughs> I, I hate to, uh, you know, to draw this picture like this, but uh, maybe have like a, a, a booth where you can go in and talk to somebody who's a mental health specialist. If you want to do it anonymously, like with confessions, <laughs> then, uh, you know, then fine, <laughs> you know, do that. But I think getting that off your chest is, uh, is a great way to, uh, to do that. And one of the ways that they can perhaps begin to trigger that um, I know that for some hospitals, when staff is reporting to work, they are still doing the temperature checks and things like that. So you can meet them at the door at that particular point and maybe just, you know, maybe ask them, uh, you know, quick little questions such as, you know, did you sleep well last night or, you know, how are things going or, you know, things, something, find something that may trigger that, you uh, and, you know, like how when you're going through security at the airport and you're randomly selected, well, maybe they should randomly select, uh, you know, employees as they're going in and say, hey, come over here, let's have a little talk for, you know, a couple of minutes. And then if you begin to sense that, yeah, this person may need uh, some assistance, perhaps um, uh, refer them or talk to their, their supervisor and say, uh, you know, so-and-so may need to, um, you know, have uh, uh, a side conversation with some of our mental health specialists or something. So yes, I love it. Just engage more, be more yeah. present with with yeah. absolutely, with absolutely, and, and let them know that there's no shame in this. You know that we're we're looking out for your health because your health 
you know, also translates into more efficiency, on, you know, on the work environment. It cuts down on mistakes, you know, uh, you know, things of that sort. And of course, it also lets other employees know that, hey, they really care about me here. You know, maybe, um, you know, I'll, I should take advantage of a service that's being offered as opposed to, um, you know, going home and, you know, maybe taking it out on, you know, God knows, you know, what else, maybe another family member, yeah. a pet, or, you know, or maybe even just taking a stick and hitting a tree, <laughs> you know, to get yeah. your anger out. Uh, you know, um, it may feel good to you, but I'm sure the tree is probably hurting <laughs> too. But, uh, yeah. So, um, but it is some way to, uh, you know, to let them know, we've got to find some way to tackle that, uh, you know, that aggression or, or the, uh, you know, the mental angst that you're, you're experiencing. And what a culture change. I mean, I think yeah. of nursing culture, the status quo is yeah. suck it up and go, 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 right. go, go, and not right. talk about it and, and the stigma. So I, I appreciate that, that so much. And, and, and we're beginning to see the heavy lift that it takes to shift that culture and yes. make it okay. And, yes. and, and one other. of the things uh, along those, those lines, Tim, is that, you know, for nursing for so long, we are, we are programmed, if you will, to just take in so much, you know, and take in everyone else's issues and problems and et cetera, that we fail to see how this is affecting us. And also, normally we're great at functioning under crisis, but this is a crisis we don't see the end of, you know, right now, even though right. we may have the promise of a vaccine, you know, most disasters, they happen, people come together, they triage, they do this, they do that, and use it within 24 to 48 hours, you're back to some sort of, uh, some form of normalcy. Here, we're going on eight months now, seven or eight months, and we still don't see the end of it. So uh, to have that, uh, you know, to continue to just linger and not know when is this going to end, that plays a huge factor too in the, uh, the fatigue and stress and, uh, you know, emotional uh, you know, problems that people may be uh, absolutely, absolutely, and the call for for strong, ongoing leadership more than ever. Um, yeah. Which I'd like to to ask kind of a follow up question along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Grant is the thirty sixth president of the ANA, the mm -hmm. third African American president of the ANA, and the first male president of the ANA. Can you share a little bit about what leadership is in this space? Also, being male and the third African American president. Share us, share with us anything that, that you can. And don't well, sugarcoat uh, it. Don't sugarcoat yeah, it. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is the real that. talk this episode. This is the nurse's station show. Yeah. You're at the nurse's yeah. station. So keep <laughs> yeah. it real. I'm keeping it real. Okay. Put well, down again, your fountain drink at the station and let them dish it. <laughs> I, uh, you know, that's a great question, Tim. And, and I guess probably for me, one is realizing that, okay, um, you know, I'm in my first year. So it was 122 years actually when, you know, when I broke the, you know, the glass ceiling, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the thing that, uh, you know, that I have to realize and, and still do is that everything you do is going to be closely scrutinized no matter what you know, serving as the first male, but also being uh, an African-American in this position too, because, you know, you have to prove in essence that you're worthy, um, you know, of this. Uh, when you consider that uh, of the 122 years, I can only think of, I think three times maybe that men may have won, uh, have ran for this position and lost terribly, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but then to, um, 
you know, to have a minority to, to, to win. And in particularly, you know, people can't tell it, but I'm 6'5", right? So I'm this big imposing figure. And I, I realize sometimes I can use my height to my advantage, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not. But, but to, um, you know, to realize that, okay, everything you do is being scrutinized from uh, different perspectives. One, you know, the fact that you're a male. Two, the fact that you're a black male. And, uh, you know, and how, uh, how you will go about, um, you know, exerting your, your leadership skills and, you know, how people may view you or how you're going to get along with people. And um, so, uh, you know, I have to take that in consideration with just about everything that I do and, um, and really get them to, to understand that I'm no different than anyone else. My skin color may be different or whatever, but I still have the same philosophy or ideas and things, which is to want the best for the association, to want the best for the nursing profession. But also, let's implement some changes too. Mm. You know, like one of my first priority as president is to increase the diversity within nursing. So that within itself, when you look at an organization or a profession that is, you know, um, depending on who you read, anywhere from 90 to well, 88 to about 90% female, mostly white, um, you know, and then you have this big imposing six foot five black guy coming in and saying, oh, we're going to change all this. <laughs> yeah. We're going to meet with some, some resistance a, a little bit. But to try to get people to understand what I'm saying is nursing should be more reflective of the people that we care for. And in order to do that, then we need to invite and open the doors and invite more uh, people of color and, and minorities to come in and consider this as a profession. Um, I had a talk earlier with uh, uh, the, some of the, uh, the students on the diversity uh, and, and inclusion committee. And one of the things that we talked about was how do we go about implementing that change? Well, one, it starts with textbooks. You know, they should be, um, you know, should not be stereotypical of, you know, uh, this culture or that culture and et cetera, which subsequently would lead to a change in the NCLEX questions so that we're all just aren't, uh, you know, looped into one particular category. And I know Dean McCauley has done an excellent job of, uh, you know, she sent out a letter about a month ago or six weeks ago um, to the ANA and uh, Association of, of uh, Colleges of Nursing as well, to a, uh, two textbooks companies to say, you need to start uh, you know, re-evaluating the materials that you're putting out. And subsequently that's gonna drive a change for the NCLEX. And I would go one step further to say that it actually needs to start at the elementary school level, you know, um, because that's where the impression is made to kids that, okay, if you wanna be a nurse, you, it's a female. Um, you know, maybe it's a, uh, you know, it's just a white, blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, individual, because that's what they see on TV, you know, being displayed. But I'm one of those change agents in that another organization that I belong to, we have adopted a, uh, an elementary school. And, you know, about uh, once a month or so, I may go in and, you know, help kids, you know, like with their reading skills and things like that. And they see that I'm a nurse, the six foot, you know, five black guy is a nurse. So maybe there's a little black boy or Hispanic boy who's saying, well, gee, maybe I can consider nursing as a career because if he can do it, why can't I? Or go to the Boys and Girls Club of America and get them, you know, when they're talking about STEM classes to think of nursing because we use all those 
curricula as well for, uh, you know, for our profession to think of nursing as a STEM course that, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the, the boys or, or minority girls would like to consider, but never thought about, um, you know, but it's a great way to uh, apply all that across the board as well. So I hope that uh, that sort of answers your questions, but, uh, you know, you, you sort of got me on my soapbox there. Uh, thank you. Yeah. That, thank yeah. That was great because I think uh, diversity, we do need to become more diverse. And I, uh, I was inspired to become a nurse. I, I, I'm Hispanic and I didn't, mm -hmm. I had never thought that I could be a nurse until someone told me yeah. uh, that I could be a nurse. So that's great. Um, you talked about being scrutinized as a leader, uh, president of the ANA. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm an early career um, nurse scientist. Um, I'm an immigrant. I was previously undocumented for like 14 years. Um, I'm Latina. Uh, the last four years for me have been a very difficult uh, time of my life because I've seen like rollbacks on EBA regulations and actions on climate change, restriction on uh, transgender rights, you know, as you mentioned, dismal response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really affecting uh, frontline nurses, racism, anti-immigration policies that are putting children in cages. And uh, just recently, last week, the recent allegations of unwarranted hysterectomies on women in ICE, um, all of which are disproportionately affecting communities of colors. In other words, your community, my community. Um, it seems to me that this is the most important time for nurses as the most trusted profession mm -hmm. to lead change um, based on the evidence at hand and use the power of advocacy mm -hmm. to protect the lives of so many. So I, I wanted to know, um, how do you feel as the president of the ANA that the board of directors um, of the ANA has made the decision to not endorse a presidential candidate since 1984? And, and what do you think these repercussions um, of not taking a stand against the Trump administration may lead to for um, these harmful policies. Okay, that's a that's a great question. And first of all, let me uh, say that we have not uh, we have taken a stand. Uh, you know, just last week we you know posted um, you know a a statement uh, about the uh, unwarranted hysterectomies. I personally have written uh, letters to members of Congress about uh, children and women uh, and minorities being held at the, the border. I've even volunteered to go and inspect these places, you know, uh, and still waiting on an answer for that. Um, so please don't get the impression that we're just sitting there and, and letting this happen. We are not. We are you know, addressing these issues uh, in a number of ways, uh, mainly either with uh, members of Congress that we're able to uh, you know, try to get the, the doorway open on both sides of the, of the, the fence, both Republicans and Democrats, um, and also with various uh, uh, federal agencies such as Health and Human Services and et cetera. Uh, even though it feels like our, our cries are falling on deaf ear, uh, deaf ears, we are letting them know that uh, you know, this is not acceptable. Now, regarding the, <clears throat> the stance of of not taking a, uh, uh, or not endorsing, uh, doing a presidential endorsement. Uh, ANA started the presidential endorsement uh, process back in 1985, as you mentioned. And um, uh, in 2019, the membership assembly, which is our highest governing body, voted to rescind that uh, particular uh, action and replace that with a presidential engagement process. And part of that engagement process was to be 
that nurses would go to either rnaction or nursesvote.org, uh, identify the presidential candidate or any other candidate that's running for office because we, the way that is listed, it goes uh, not only for uh, presidents, but uh, any other elected offices, even in your state, all the way down to your city councilman and mayor. Uh, so you just put in your zip code and it tells you, you know, these are the people, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, and in some cases, independents who are running for you know, for a particular office. And uh, the idea being is that you would read their profile, their, uh, you know, their stance on various healthcare related issues, and you make up your own decision as to who you're going to choose and vote for. And also at the uh, time you may want to um, uh, choose to register to vote and, uh, and also get other friends and colleagues and family uh, to, to vote as well. So the process for the, uh, to relax the endorsement, it was discussed for two years. Uh, we held town halls. <clears throat> we created a task force to, uh, you know, to look into this uh, and et cetera. And at the 2019 membership assembly, um, the, uh, the, uh, the members voted by almost 90% to do away with the presidential uh, endorsement process. The rationale being uh, from a number of things. One, ANA is made up of Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Granted, most, of, well, not most, I'd say all the presidential candidates that we had endorsed were Democrats because they tend to align more with our uh, ideology and or policies or things that, that we, we held. But we were hearing increasingly from members I don't want ANA to tell me who to vote for. Give me the information and let me make the decision myself. On top of that, um, a number, ANA is one of the few organizations at that time that still did presidential endorsements. Most organizations uh, have ceased doing presidential endorsements because of the division that it may cause among their, their membership. Uh, again, people needing to recognize that, um, you know, we're all in this together, you know, per se. Um, the, uh, the board, when we did our deliberation, and it took quite a while to, you know, to do that, we reviewed the, um, you know, the, uh, the minutes and the notes from, that, uh, from all the town hall meetings and things like that that was held from the task force. We got a number of emails, mostly from, uh, from California, uh, encouraging us to, uh, to do the endorsement, or at least if you looked on the website, there was what pe people figured uh, or concluded were favorable um, things regarding President Trump related to you know, healthcare uh, issues, uh, that we should uh, you know, uh, revise that or, or take it down. Um, uh, a fair number of the emails that we got were not from members. Uh, a lot of them were copy and paste from, there was a, a, a campaign, if you will, that was uh, started and uh, had uh, asking members to, you know, to send this to, to the board. So a lot of those were cut and paste. Some of them were not from members. Um, there was a, a sign-on letter, which uh, had, uh, I think, about 100 and some odd names. A number of those were not from members as well. Uh, there was a lot to take into consideration. Finally, though, what the board wound up, uh, you know, looking at was, do you undo the will of the uh, membership assembly, your highest governing body? You know, they spoke overwhelmingly that we do not want this. Yes, you, uh, you know, the, the fact that they uh, were, uh, they gave the board the permission to do that, uh, that was a last minute um, uh, proviso, if you will, that was put in. 
Um, you know, but uh, the bottom line is the message you would be sending to the board, uh, to uh, membership assembly that anything that they voted on, um, you know, the board could easily take away. Um, and that's a, uh, that's a pretty onerous thing to have. We had to put aside our own uh, uh, beliefs and, uh, um, you know, because we all were in agreement that, yes, this uh, is this, uh, 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 you know, the, the administration has not been uh, very truthful with the public. Uh, they have not, um, you know, done much to protect public health and, uh, you know, things of this sort. Uh, but you have to, you know, look at it through this narrow focus of, you know, we're representative of Republicans, Democrats, and independents. They voted overwhelmingly by 90% that we do not want this to, uh, to, to happen. And it's a lose-lose situation because, you know, if you voted one way, you're going to, you know, have people who would, uh, would be um, uh, essentially uh, displeased. And if you voted another way, you're going to have people to, to be displeased. But uh, the, the bottom version came down that, um, you know, do you go against the will of the uh, the, the membership assembly. Um, so we are hoping, and hopefully you uh, have seen my follow-up email, open letter to the uh, ANA members, and hopefully that explains things. And and hopefully it also explains that the engagement process is doing what it was designed to do, which is to get nurses to become active. And those who are, um, you know, who are uh, still critical of the decision you know, the energy that they're spending, you know, criticizing the board, they could use that energy, turn it inside and become proactive and, you know, begin to, uh, you know, do work for, for the, the Biden campaign. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a very tough situation to be in. And uh, even, you know, uh, I would say, and as I told the board, you know, this is the most critical decision we will ever make as a, as a board, but uh, uh, having served on, not only just nursing boards, but I have also served as chair of several other major boards for, uh, you know, national organizations. Uh, you know, you're always um, um, reminded that it is the members who, you know, uh, who govern the organization. And based on that, you know, the fact that the members voted by almost 90%, we don't want this. That's, uh, that was how that decision was made. Yeah, thank you Sorry so much. for the long answer. <laughs> no, I, I actually uh, did read your letter. I actually had it right in front of me. Um, and there was something that did catch my eye that uh, where you said you pledged personally to get out the vote of yes. the candidate you believe is yes. the um, uh, the one that represents your values. Right. Would you uh, care to share with us who you, that candidate is? Your um, personal candidate. <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> but I think you can pretty well read between the lines that, you know, as I said up before that, I said that, you know, we had to put our own political views aside and, uh, yeah, and that was very tough to do. I mean, you know, uh, but I think you can pretty well guess <laughs> who I, uh, who, who I, I most align myself with. And in alignment with this idea of engagement. Um, you mentioned two websites. I just want to repeat those in case our listeners want to connect. You mentioned are in action mm -hmm. and nursesvote.org. Is mm -hmm. that correct? correct. Okay. As, as, as ways that we can. Or they we can, can also further. go on the ANA website, nursingworld.org. Uh, and, you know, just type in, uh, do a search for vote and it will take them to those two sites as well. Great, nursingworld.org as well. I'd like to put a pitch, if I could, for another voting um, 
approach that we can take as we engage. Um, oh, this is my, my, work, my work badge, but in front is a lanyard that I wear and I've been wearing for over a month now. It's a, it's a program called Vote ER. Mm-hmm. And it was started by an ER physician who realized in emergency settings and as an emergency nurse, many mm-hmm. of the people that we treat in emergency rooms across the country are disenfranchised. Many are not um, registered to vote. Many don't know about the, how they can register to vote or where. Right. So with this program, I wear this lanyard everywhere I go in the health system. And if someone says, what's up with that lanyard? I say, um, I believe in healthcare. I know that my vote counts to how we can change and make healthcare better. Mm-hmm. Are you registered to vote? And if the person says no, then I put, hold this up. They use their camera, they take a picture mm-hmm. of it, and this links them directly in that state to where they can sign up to vote or mm-hmm. where they can register to vote by mail because we know that that is safe. Yeah. Um, so a lot of ways to engage. And, yeah, uh, and, and that's, that's the whole engagement process right there is that you've educated yourself, now you want to educate others. And as I said, we heard overwhelmingly from people, um, yeah, and, and as I stated earlier too, when this question was asked, ANA does not have the vote. You have the vote. You know, you're the one who, uh, you know, whose vote counts. So, and people would say, I don't want ANA to tell me who to vote for. Give me the information and let me vote, you know, let me make my own decision. And, you know, so that's a, that's a great example of, you know, taking that engagement process and going forward and, you know, getting others to, um, you know, to help, uh, you know, become engaged as well. So. Thanks. I think this, um, component of sort of really full, fully owning our role as nurses, not just in health systems and at work, but in our communities and mm-hmm. using that voice where people yes. can also trust us because sometimes they're doing that engagement work on their own to find out more information, but they have questions about what this really means yes. for people's health and well-being when right. they're sick and when they're trying not to be sick. So Absolutely. thanks. Thanks for that. So Dr. Grant, I mean, we could just talk all day. I mean, we would be thrilled to have you back for another episode because this is not enough time. Um, if you're open to that, maybe we can reach out to you. And, yes, I'd be happy to, anytime. Okay, so we, we thank you so much for being here with us today. Again, it's Dr. Ernest Grant from the American Nursing Association. If you have any questions for us or for him, feel free to follow us on our LinkedIn page, or you can find us on www.nursing.emory.edu backslash the nurses station. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We have an Instagram. We have, uh, well, we have Facebook. We have Twitter. Twitter. Uh, we even YouTube. have a, we even have a TikTok, but we oh hadn't even God. gotten into it yet. <laughs> but but just give us, we'll maybe get Dr. Grant to do a TikTok with us. Oh, that, yeah. that'd, be, <laughs> that'd be pretty neat. So thanks, thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.